Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, podcast fans. Uh, it's me today. It's James. It's only James. We're giving you some updates on the UC strike, but we recorded these before some changes happened. Progress, you could call it. Maybe it's not progress. Depends on where you're at um, position-wise with that. But there are two interviews today. One's going to explain a little bit about the bargaining and the differences between rank and file on the bargaining team. The other one's going to explain the very important and radical and, and um, progressive access needs demands that were made and it seems like ultimately not at least they're not on the table in this tentative agreement so there's a tentative agreement out for voting right now um if you have been on the internet today saturday um and if you've been on today you'll have seen it presented as if the strike was over that's not necessarily the case right the contract is up for ratification and it's ratified by union members who have to vote on it a number of people are organizing for a no vote, especially people who are in departments or parts of the university which would qualify for lower tiers of pay. The contract has tiered pay, has tiered pay both geographically and based on what kind of work you're doing. And so a lot of the people who are left at the bottom of those tiers are obviously feeling like they've, they've been out on strike for five weeks and haven't got what they wanted. A lot of people who are on those higher tiers are also feeling like they should be expressing solidarity with their fellow workers at the bottom. Um, but... Uh, you will have seen like a lot of reporting. Some of it came out very, very quickly after the um, after the tentative agreement was made, which is odd, and perhaps is because the union appears to be uh, the union staff, I should say, the people who are who are making these. But some some of the people who are who are in favour of this contract are using a PR company, which appears to have maybe seeded some stories and some publications. But we can't be sure. Certainly, they were very quick to press. So I would urge you to listen to this as sort of a coda to some of what you might be reading. There are two things. You can listen to them separately. You can listen to them one after the other. 
we won't have any podcasts for a while over the over the break. So I will speak to you again in the new year, and I hope you enjoy both these interviews. Mohammed, can you just explain first of all, tell folks like which campus you're at, and maybe what you're studying, and and where you are in the uh, in the giant structure that is like the UAW UCSDE. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm at UC San Diego. Um, I'm a fifth year in the PhD program in the Department of Ethnic Studies. And okay. yeah, I specifically study uh, like Muslim racialization and sectarianism in the US. Um, and how that, yeah, how that links up to like imperialism, settler colonialism, um, like gender formations, things like that. Um, and I suppose my place within this as you say, like the, the labyrinth of UCSD yeah. and UAW politics. Um, right now, I'm just a rank and file member. Um, mm-hmm. However, uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, the unit chair for San Diego. So I was okay. actually on the bargaining team yeah. previously. Um, and that was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so a lot of like COVID bargaining, for example, um, I sort of like oversaw that. Uh, and prior to that, I um, was... Uh, organizer with the cola movement and so i helped organize the wildcat strike um here at san diego yeah uh yeah nice yeah yeah that's a long history of union organizing (laughs) it's good um so can you explain to folks a little bit about because you mentioned the bargaining team there right and Mm -hmm. um maybe people won't be familiar with the distinctions in union organization obviously this isn't italy in the 1960s so you don't bargain (laughs) with the entire union on mass sadly but they do, the university meets with a certain group of union representatives. So could you explain like who they are and how they're selected to start with maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are essentially two levels of, well, three levels of leadership mm-hmm. um, within the, the union. So at the top, um, in terms of statewide leadership, you have uh, the executive board. Um, and that's, you know, like president, vice presidents for North and South campuses, um, trustees, treasurers, things like that. Um, and then you have campus-based leadership, and that's split between uh, head stewards that are apportioned to campuses based on their population and size. Um, and then you have uh, two kind of uh, sort of like head leadership positions, one being the unit chair and the other being the recording secretary. And so the bargaining team for the whole union is composed of the unit chair and the rec sec from each campus. Um, and this time around, we've added someone from UC San Francisco. They're usually not represented, like in past bargaining cycles, they haven't been. So there are now 19 people on um, the UAW 2865 bargaining team, um, whereas previously there had been 18. Um, yeah, and, and I guess the, the sort of like final level of, of leadership that combines both campus level and statewide leadership is what's called the joint council. Um, but that's kind of the the hierarchy or the structure of the uh, union. Okay. Yeah, it's fascinating. They just went to an odd number because I, yeah. I, I want to get on to something next, which is this division. Like there's, uh, that, mm-hmm. I think people are calling them BT10 and BT9, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which which could have been BT9 and BT9 if you if you didn't have the, uh, the UCSF mm-hmm. person, uh, which would have been yeah. a whole larger uh, sort of, mess um oh it's so much fun yeah. yeah yeah that would have been great uh so what is this division like there there are two distinct i guess positions as as regards bargaining so perhaps you could explain a little bit of that yeah absolutely um i mean i think just you know this might be obvious but just to preface with the fact that um 
even within these so-called camps of like BT10, BT9, there's a lot of heterogeneity, right? Yep. And so we saw this voting block emerge um, in the first week of the strike, mainly around um, the wages demand and how, um, you know, one of the central pieces of that original demand, the way that it was crafted, was that it was aimed at bringing members out of rent burden. And so rent burden, uh, I'm sure folks have talked about this before, yep. but it's defined as paying more than 30% of your monthly income in rent. And so that translated in terms of our demand to a minimum base wage of $54,000 a year, along with wage increases that are tacked on to um, the increase in like the median rental price um, for, for housing. And so uh, in that vote, we saw, you know, the split emerge 10-9, and then we saw, um, again, this kind of split uh, paralleled in the vote to have open or closed bargaining sessions and the fact that 10 people voted to have closed sessions. And again, you know, since then, um, another big concession, I'm going to use the term concession, even though there's a lot of consternation coming from like UAW leadership, because a concession is technically when you lose something you've already ha you already have. And so when it comes to like the disability and access article, um, you know, something that we proposed and which, you know, a demand that was crafted through and by, uh, you know, disability justice activists and disabled workers was mandatory supervisor training. And that was dropped. Um, and again, we saw that along same lines of 10 and 9. Um, and so, you know, I, I think ideologically speaking, if I were to kind of, you know, analyze this and give my my take, it's that the the nine people I think are more committed to, um, I suppose, being like representative of uh, their campus concerns. Um, and so, for example, some of those BT9 members, I was on the bargaining team with a few years ago, and, you know, they and I didn't necessarily agree on a lot of issues. Um, but now, because their campuses have been vocally in support of demands like a cost of living adjustment, a COLA, or in support of, um, you know, not dropping the amount of childcare that we can get folks reimbursed for. Um, you know, actually listening to their membership has caused them to kind of quote unquote side with um, other bargaining team members, which may have uh, other ideological commitments beyond just the contract, right? And so a commitment to progressively defunding uh, UCPD, right? The police department and sort of putting th that, those funds elsewhere within the university system. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we see that kind of split emerge, um, you know, now with this bargaining cycle, but this is also a split that's existed within the union for a while. And so you look historically at the 2018 contract cycle, 2014, right, um, 2010, 2011, and there's always been this kind of division and it's, you know, it's represented in American labor more broadly between kind of like sociopolitical unionism on one end and more like liberal or business unionism on the other. And so it's not really, or at least it shouldn't be surprising to us that a lot of those BT10 members or a majority of folks on the statewide ex executive board are aligned with what's called like the administrative caucus at the UAW international level, or they're vocally supportive of current UAW president, uh, Ray Curry. And in the latest uh, general elections, um, even though officially the local didn't take a stance, um, on social media, like there's photos of our union president posing with Ray Curry um, for the Curry Solidarity team. Um, and so there are those kind of like larger structural alignments as well. Yeah. And of course, if people aren't aware, um, 
even yeah. you know, like you say within the union as a whole like yeah uh, and within the whole like american unionization right we have the afl cio which includes mm-hmm. uh unions which are of police officers and then yeah. We we have I know that the UCSD uh, locals of U of or at least the UC locals I should say of UAW have made statements about that being an issue, but it, it's it's still a thing that's happening, um, and yeah. yeah, it doesn't necessarily um, follow, especially in this country, that labor organization is always progressive in in its in its other politics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought it was really cool that a lot of the demands that were made were progressive when when the strike began, right? Like um, mm-hmm. there was a cops off campus demand, there was this access needs demand and yeah. things like that, like, uh, you know, a- access to childcare for people. Like some of them, some of them were economic, some of them were not economic, some of them, which mm-hmm. has always been a thing with student organizing, right? We can go back, um, I'm not very good at math, we can go back to 1968 and, and we, can, we can look at yeah. like students making political demands and that changing the demands that unions made in the mm-hmm. 1960s and i think it's cool that that you all had those going in uh where are we at with the bargaining now like it it doesn't look like cops mm-hmm. are leaving campus from what i can see right now yeah i think um so it's kind of complicated right now because we've uh just recently entered a voluntary pre-impasse mediation um and so a lot of the big outstanding articles, wages, childcare, uh, the remission of uh, non-resident uh, supplemental tuition, which disproportionately affects international students, right? Makes them, quote unquote, more, more costly to the university. Um, so a lot of those open things now are being uh, discussed through this mediator. Um, and I think even within that process, um, we see a lot of the same issues emerging that have been present for the entirety of the bargaining process which mainly is that, um, again, my my position on this is that our bargaining team hasn't been pushing enough. Um, And you see that kind of on two levels. One, at the actual table, um, there's a lot of passivity. And so when, you know, the bargaining team is kind of explaining their decision to membership, it's mainly, um, you know, they're saying things like, well, we reduced the wages demand by $11,000, like right away because that's what would be more amenable to the university. And of course, that is not true, right? Because the UC came back to us with like a $28,000 offer or something like that, like pitifully low. Um, And so again, there's a lot of, you know, concessionary, I think, moves. Um, And there's the desire to to kind of close the gap with the university, essentially. And again, that kind of betrays, um, I think, uh, uh, a fundamental misunderstanding from our bargaining team that Somehow, if we are respectable enough, if we present enough rational arguments, the UC will uh, respect that, right? They'll, they'll sort of like give in to our demands um, that will somehow goad them to come in our direction. Whereas, you know, we should see the UC as like one of the largest um, bosses, one of the largest landlords in the country. Um, and so, of course, they're going to try to screw us out of as much as they can because that's their function. Um, and so, on one end, I think we've seen a lot of core demands get dropped. We've seen um, a intense like weakening of our position as well as a really incredible lack of transparency. Um, and so I mentioned before the fact that uh, most bargaining meetings or most bargaining sessions have been closed doors. Um, the fact that uh, a number of like uh, 
private like sidebars have taken place. And oftentimes membership gets like very vague emails or we're, or we're, you know, told like, oh, progress was made, you know, we won certain things, but then the technicality of those wins is completely left out of the picture. Um, even more recently, uh, bargaining team members voted to uh, make the, the votes at the table private. And so after dropping the COLA demand, you know, folks were upset and obviously reaching out to the bargaining team, showing up to caucuses and being upset. And so from there, the bargaining team framed this as quote unquote harassment and essentially voted to make all the votes private. Um, and so, you know, we've seen a lot of moves like that, that, you know, make it clear that the union leadership is trying to preserve the union rather than preserve uh, its membership, right? And preserve the well-being of, of those folks. And so I think at the table, again, we see this kind of passive or concessionary um, uh, strategy. And on the ground, when it comes to like the strikes at all these campuses, we see something similar where, you know, the majority of the actions that we took in the first two to three weeks of the strike was just picketing, right? And obviously, you know, the picket is is a powerful tool. The picket is a very symbolic tool. But in a, you know, industry like the academy, picketing doesn't serve the same purpose as it might like at a factory, right? We're not actually shutting down the workplace. It's a great show of, of force in a way because you have thousands of people out. But obviously when we're being required to sign up for 20 hours of picketing to get our strike pay, folks get exhausted. We ha will have, you know, like huge marches through campus, go to a rally and it'll be two hours of people talking. Um, and that exhausts people. And even when it comes to, you know, like, at UC Davis, they had uh, the undergrads actually had like an amazing direct action where they blockaded the campus every single day. Um, and that, of course, led to a legal response from the university and the union leadership, you know, rather than challenge that or, you know, take uh, take measures to make sure that those folks could organize autonomously of them, um, started uh, like harassing and disciplining folks basically um, for taking uh, taking part in solidarity actions that may push up against the law. Um, and so what we see as like a concessionary um, attitude at the table, I think is translated as a very, um, or is translated into like respectability politics um, on the ground. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent way of phrasing it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of what, what you were definitely suggesting and, and what it seems that we've seen. So where does that leave people? And I think some of the things that have been suggested to be like in, in the sort of current proposals, both from the union and the university would leave people with a contract that they would find, I'm guessing, unsatisfactory, right? Especially after um, mm -hmm. four, four and a half, five weeks of being out of and, and possible withholding of pay, right? Which we can get onto. Um, yeah. But where does that leave people? Like, what what's the feeling amongst your? So, and you, obviously, you can't speak for the rank and file across the whole university. But what's mm -hmm. what's the sort of feeling amongst the rank and file with regards to what do we do if we get this offer which doesn't give us the things that we went out for in the first place? Yeah, um, I, I think that there is a lot of just uh, polarization around that question. Um, I've heard from a number of folks, uh, unsurprisingly, I think people who um, are materially at least treated a little bit better, right, who get higher pay already um, from the university, uh, being all right with it, you know, but that's, the, that's the, the most that I hear. I haven't heard anyone, even the most staunch supporter of the union establishment, say that this contract, or at least 
what is bound to come to the table at this point is going to be satisfactory, is going to actually be desirable. It's just seen as like, oh, this is the best we can get and we might as well settle in like every sense of the word. Um, but that being said, there is a large contingent, again, of folks that are totally fine with that or they're tired of striking or they're seeing a lot of retaliation from their supervisors. And the union, I think, has failed to um, not only respond to that retaliation and to like reassure and empower members, but it's also failed to, um, you know, the technical term in organizing would be inoculate. Right. Um, there is a huge, in my opinion, organizational failure to make clear exactly what could happen to folks when we go on strike or to prepare us to hear the talking points from the university um, and how to you know, collectively organize against it, to build up a kind of consciousness, to resist internalizing that and to say, like, oh, I don't want to strike because my job's at risk or something. And it's like, yeah, of, of course. Right. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. we're, we're taking that action. Um, and so on one end, right, I mean, there's a number of reasons as to why and that kind of hinted at that. But there is a large contingent of, of, of people who um, would just be OK and they're going to vote yes. Um, but I also think, right, and as I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've, you've seen around social media or you've talked to other folks who are on the side of voting no. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the consternation there comes, again, from the fact that we've dropped so much. Um, and kind of have left our most vulnerable members out to dry. Um, so whether that comes from you know, reducing the amount of childcare or um, dependent healthcare, or um, you know, again dropping those like really core elements of the disability and access needs um, articles, when it comes to dropping cola and dropping our wages down to a point where we would still be in not just rent burden but severe rent burden. Um, it's been leading a lot of folks to uh, you know, promote the idea that we're going to vote no, um, regardless, because even if the remaining articles you know, are better than we expected um, and they get tentatively agreed to, there's already too much that's been lost to make this uh, an adequate contract, right? Not even great, not even satisfactory, but just adequate. Um, and so, you know, of course, that kind of uh, division, as you might say, um, has brought up a lot of tensions, especially in the last few days. Um, but, you know, I, I think now we're seeing uh, a, a broader gap between these two like sides um, where there are folks that are pretty much, again, set on voting yes because it's good enough. Um, and there are other folks who um, are pretty staunch in, in voting no and trying to build up that movement. Um, and I think the point we're at now, at least speaking from that like vote no side, is that um, we really need to outline and be transparent with membership uh, where we can go from there. Like, how do we demystify the process or the process, the possibility of impasse? Um, you know, that's been uh, a concept that's thrown around a lot by union leadership and is never fully unpacked. Um, and so it's like a fear mongering tool that's that's been, in my opinion, at least like used um, to subdue member militancy. Um, so that's one issue. Another issue is like, how do we reopen certain articles? How do we build this quote unquote long haul strike to gain more than we've already, you know, um, given up at this point? And so I think a lot of those technicalities that are up in the air are uh, renewed sort of like areas of, of organizing focus. Um, yeah, yeah, so it, you don't have to abandon some of those demands which were non-economic. Like, yeah, those can still be. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's no point in really speculating how many people will vote yes or no. We'll see once once we see the agreement. <laughs> um, yeah. But, like, 
Can you give us an update then on where striking gets obviously progressively harder as it gets longer, right? People don't want to stand on a picket for five weeks, yeah. six weeks. They don't they want to go home for the holidays. Um, mm-hmm. They have this pressure that's been leveraged, perhaps unfairly, uh, and sometimes uh, like erroneously that their students will face uh, immigration or graduation yeah. consequences, which is largely untrue. Um, so like... Can you talk about there's there's a chance that people won't be getting paid right in December? Has that happened to anyone? What's the latest with that? Um, so a lot of what's been going around um, in terms of uh, issues with pay, uh, a lot of the news I've seen concerns uh, postdocs. So mm-hmm. folks from the local uh, 5810 yeah. who actually just signed and approved that tentative agreement. Um, so the university has put out some language implying that they'll retroactively dock pay. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I can't like speak to the technicalities of that. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely a concern I've seen floating around. Um, and I know that they're actively organizing around it. Um, for ASCs and uh, student researchers, mm-hmm. um, we none of us have been docked pay yet. Um, we all got paid for December, um, in part because I just think the university has a really hard time keeping track of who's on strike. On top yeah. of the fact that, I mean, I don't know if anyone's already complained to you about UC Path, but the payroll yeah. system that got rolled out, yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. Um, it's terrible. It's an absolute fucking nightmare. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it would be a, a massive achievement for them to even be able to withhold folks' pay through that system. <laughs> yeah, they've um, struggled to pay people in the past, including myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so... Um, you know, I, I think it is it is a real concern, but at this point, um, at least to my knowledge, no one in 2865 or SRU has been affected by, by pay withholding. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. And then let's, so let's talk about the grade withholding, which is now, like, today is the day, right, that the grade should be due in. Obviously, many yeah. people are not filing those grades, <laughs> um, which, again, is another example, actually, of the UC just being a bureaucratic disaster, but uh, we can skip past <laughs> that. So the grades are not being being filed. Can we talk about some of the suggestions that have been made by the university? I know one of them was that students on, uh, like, F1 visas might face consequences. Um, yeah. Th- that's not true as, as best i having been on f1 visa as best i understand it um mm. and that uh students on fee on, on grants and scholarships might face consequences so can you explain sort of what they've said and then perhaps perhaps offer some insight into what into why you think that that might be misleading yeah absolutely um so exactly what you're saying um you know folks in vulnerable categories such as people on academic probation or whose financial aid is dependent on um being in like you know good standing um or yeah, like international students. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, fear-mongering and misleading um, information out there that these students might be, you know, kicked out of school, they might be deported, they might um, face, uh, you know, again, like financial consequences. Um, but it's important also to recognize that uh, having a grade remain blank uh, doesn't affect folks' GPA, it doesn't affect, affect folks' uh, academic standing. Um, and for international students, um, you know, the best that we understand, and we've actually communicated with universities, uh, international students' offices, and what they say is that um, it's enrollment that matters, not necessarily having the grade. And so, um, even if you know, let's say, like all of someone's grades are withheld, they've still enrolled in the requisite number of credits. Um, right. And so that that standing in terms of a visa wouldn't be affected. Um, and the same goes for even something as simple as moving on to the next course in a sequence, um, because uh, you know again, it, the the withholding of a grade doesn't affect um, that kind of like progress or academic standing. Um, and uh, as a sort of like technical note, a lot of folks are again concerned that like, well, wouldn't this blank grade lead to an incomplete, or wouldn't it lead to an F? Um, and uh, in terms of the incomplete, uh, there's a reason why we're not filing everyone with an I, uh, we're yeah. leaving the grades blank because an incomplete is costly. It's more work for everyone. And so yeah. we're avoiding that. And um, blank grades don't default to an F until the following semester or following uh, term ends. Mm-hmm. And so for us at UCSD, um, since many of us are withholding grades, they, those blank grades wouldn't turn to an F until the end of winter, so around March. And okay. I don't think anyone expects the strike to go that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be truly historical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so how has the undergraduate response been then? Yeah, that's... um, It's difficult because I know at, at certain campuses, like I mentioned UC Davis earlier, there's mm-hmm. been huge undergrad involvement there. Yeah. Um, at San Diego, I think the response has been a bit mixed. Um, 
I know many of my students, for example, were mm -hmm. supportive of the strike. Um, yeah. And within, you know, my department, ethnic studies, we did try to get students more involved. Like we held uh, teach-ins um, to get students to come out. And, mm -hmm. you know, the class that I'm TAing for right now is called Land and Labor. And so we talked about, <laughs> yeah. you know, UCSD, right? And, and the relationship to like colonialism, capitalism, yeah. land and yeah. labor. Um, and so we've tried to integrate, you know, not just, um, you know, student engagement and support, but also to use this as another form of study, right? As a form of study that's not, that's outside the kind of like bureaucratic mess that is the university yeah. with its nonsense. Um, I think what's difficult at San Diego is that, um, you know, political engagement has historically come in waves, obviously at yes. all universities, folks come and go. Yeah. But it's particularly acute, I think, at San Diego, where there's massive moments of like upheaval and like folks coming out in the thousands, like we saw back in um, 2020 um, around the pandemic, around the, mm -hmm. the, the uprisings um, during the summer, around even the COLA movement, right? Which was a little yeah. bit before that. We saw yeah. huge numbers of undergrads come out, in part because we were able, back then at least, to connect our demands to their concerns, right? The fact that psychological services on campus are horribly underfunded, right? People have to wait a whole quarter to get even yeah. the intake appointment. Um, the fact that, again, like they're getting screwed over with housing just as much as we are, um, mm -hmm. paying, you know, over ten or $15,000 a year in it for a dorm. Um, and so, you know, that connection back then, I think, really drew out the undergrads. And that's what's really lacking now. Again, I think because of the way that the union has framed the struggle quite narrowly as not just what affects workers, but what, aff what affects the majority of workers. Um, that's left out a lot of the broader concerns that has foreclosed a lot of broader critiques of the university. And so when it comes to something like the cops off campus demand, the fact that we have bargaining team members at UCLA, for example, literally lie and say that it's never been on the table um, is really indicative of how the union is trying to frame this. And so the fact that, you know, again, those broader conversations around the UC being a landlord, around mm -hmm. the um, way that, uh, you know, profit and resources are um, inequitably distributed through the university um, infrastructure, right? Those things drop out of the conversation about our strike. Um, and if we do bring it up, we're seen as dissidents or something like that, or radical. Um, and so the fact that those things have dropped out, I think, has led to us seeing the situation like we see at UCSD, where the undergrads are almost ambivalent, if not hostile, um, because we haven't done a good enough job engaging them. We haven't okay. also organized alongside and with them. Um, rather, it's been like, come support your TAs, and not like we're fighting together, right? And so yeah, it's, yeah. It, yeah, it, it betray, you know, it, it gives the impression that this is like a very one-way um, or, you know, like a unidirectional form of support. Where in reality, you know, we should be building up those ties of, of solidarity and that, you know, we should be focusing not just on winning a contract, but then building and sustaining this movement um, against the university in a much larger or broader sense. Yeah, because it's I, I'm speaking from experience, I know a lot of those mm -hmm. undergrads feel very disempowered in their relations with the university and and some of the demands, like the access needs demand, uh, you know, the, the demand for improved student counseling and psychological services, things like that, like mm -hmm. that would benefit directly everyone on campus. I and mean, then, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a shame not to see that. It's a shame to see that sort of left 
to the side when I think yeah, it could, it could build a more effective movement. And yeah. So Absolutely. yeah, it does seem to go like you said, campus by campus, department. Your your department like has historically been a lot more engaged than others. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's fair to say so. And mm-hmm. so we've reached the Christmas break now. Uh, grades have been withheld, which I think a lot of people thought was like sort of a nuclear option or like a, a step up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which it doesn't seem to have been. Like it really hasn't done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the UC has entered into, or the, the the university and the union have entered into a voluntary pre and pass mediation. When do you like? If you were just speculating, um, when do you think we'll see like a resolution? Because it's already slipped out of coverage, right? Like if I look at our local yeah. newspaper that they've stopped reporting on it, mm-hmm. which doesn't help. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, it's it's difficult to to speculate in part because as we've seen with past bargaining updates, they tend to drop bombshells on us. Um like with the whole cola demand being, you know, severely cut down, we found about we found out about that like 2 hours before the bargaining session, yes. <laughs> which is at like 10 p.m. And so it's totally possible by like that by the end of this week we'll have a tentative agreement. Like, mm-hmm. you know, folks have been speculating on that it wouldn't surprise me. I would be disappointed, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, at the same time, though, I, I I do think that we've been able to build up s- sufficient pressure on the the union establishment or the leadership um, that I think they're they might be a bit more hesitant, right, to take that sudden of a move or to kind of come out of left field with something like that. Um, and so, you know, there is the distinct possibility, especially with the holidays coming up that this might go into the new year. Um, and obviously that would be like my hope to go as long as possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's incredibly tough. And I think that's causing a lot of anxiety. Um, and that's kind of a, a disorganizing energy, right? To not know when something like this might happen because there is such an utter lack of communication or, um, you know, democratic input. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, the the coverage or the great strike. Um, what's really unfortunate, I think, is the way that uh, I've heard, you know, from the the horse's mouth, right? Certain bargaining team members saying that withholding grades isn't an important form or isn't an impactful form of, of labor withholding um, because the university doesn't care. And historically, we've seen that they really do care. And with an academic yeah, yeah, strikes, yeah. withholding finals is a massive thing, right? Yeah. And I think that in order to really um, realize the impact that that'll have on the institution, mm-hmm. we have to go for a few more weeks into the winter quarter. Um, and, you know, right now, even to try to um, uh, build up some more, um, I guess, like, you know, PR around grade withholding, um, there are folks doing research and trying to calculate, like quantify um, what like, you know, each credit would mean in like real dollars. And then the fact that, uh, you know, hundreds of students' grades are being withheld for a three or four hour, like three or four credit um, class and mm-hmm. what that translates to into money. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we look at what the university does, right, it, it, it turns its capital into, into, into income essentially through like yeah. leveraging its credibility for a credential and, and charging people masses of rent for living yeah. there increasingly. And you mm-hmm. can't take away the housing, right. Which yeah. is its major source of revenue, but you, you can take away this, mm-hmm. this, this product. So. Yeah. And, and, and there have been, um, you know, there are a number of petitions out there, uh, for example, um, 
for undergrads to request like a reimbursement of their tuition for any classes mm-hmm. that haven't been um, held or grades that have been withheld. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really fantastic way to engage them and to put pressure on the university. There's also been um, uh, attempts or at least, you know, um, some strategizing on on our end on how to uh, have the grade uh, strike impact the university's accreditation. Um, and so we are trying to look for avenues to increase the pressure um, from this kind of like strategic move. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, yeah. It, it must be difficult, I'm sure, like as you mm-hmm. develop relationships with undergraduates and especially when you're TAing in your department, the class you care about, uh, it, yeah. it's a shame to, to lose that opportunity to talk to people about important things like landed labor. And yeah. so I'm sure it's difficult to not have that chance to even check in at the end of the end of the uh, the term and just say like you know this has been fun. What have we learned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you know for a lot of us who are ASEs, you know, we're doing this not just for ourselves but for our students, right? Because mm-hmm. we care about education and we recognize yeah. that the university as an institution is actually corrosive, right, to a quality education. And so, yeah. absolutely, I think like there is a sense of loss. I think the fact that I can't like you're saying, close out my class, the fact that I can't, um, you know, really invest in my students the way I want and not trying to blame that on the strike, but trying to blame that on the conditions that have brought us to to strike in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get like full Marxist on, on Maine, but like, yeah, the, the, the further alienated <laughs> you are from your labor, then the, like, the, the less mm-hmm. the, the experience is for your undergraduates. And, <laughs> and, and that is definitely a thing that happens at the university. You become more and more alienated and, uh, Oh yes. Yeah. The joy that dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say with a PhD and doing no work in academia. Um, <laughs> Mohammed, is there anything else people should know about the strike? Like that we haven't talked about? Hmm. Let's see. Um, I, I would say, you know, one one important thing is that both for folks within the university system and from, you know, the outside is to kind of place this strike in historic context. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when the the union leadership has spoken about this at all, it's mainly around the size of the strike. The fact yeah. that it's, it's historic because we have, you know, 48,000 possible strikers um, mm-hmm. from throughout the UCs. And that's kind of misleading because I think the real kind of like historic potential within this struggle is, um, for example, establishing a precedent of what a researcher strike looks like. Part of the reason it's so difficult for us to not only, you know, mobilize researchers, but also, you know, um, push back against retaliation is because there is no set structure for what that kind of strike looks like, right? Um, There is no effective way that we have to um, counter the possible impacts on these people's futures. Um, and so I think that, you know, really emphasizing that to folks is, um, is key. Another thing is, um, the COLA demand, right? The fact that we are trying to, or at least we've tried to tack, um, our wage increases, not just to, um, inflation or the consumer price index, but to the median uh, increase in, in rental prices. Um, that would be huge. And that's not just big for us as as workers within this local, but that does set the precedent for all workers in the U.S. And I yeah. think that, you know, we really, by we, I mean, like the, the union as a whole apparatus has not stressed the importance of that or the kind of like monumental shift that that could um, 
kind of provoke in the the landscape of American labor broadly. Just so if people aren't aware, like like rent in California has gone up way more than double, almost almost triple the rate of inflation. Yeah. Uh, and, and working people, people who are members of unions, by and large, tend to be people who don't own property. But they tend to be yeah. people who rent property, right? And uh, I can see by your your unfinished concrete ceiling that uh, <laughs> you're you're renting yeah. from the UC, which is the biggest landlord in California. So, like, mm-hmm. you're right that this is a very historic thing. Is that rent increase for cola? Is that tied to median rent in the state, or is it median rent across UC rented uh, like like apartments? So, I think the actual language. So, this is part of the problem is that. Because it was dropped so quickly at the table, we weren't even able to get into the vicissitudes of oh, the, the yeah. demand itself. Um, and so for, from my understanding, the uh, increase would be based on um, the like least affordable or essentially the largest increase that we'll see at any of the campuses. Okay. Um, and everyone's wage would be increased to that. When we look at the base wage, though, the 54K, um, mm-hmm. That was tacked on to, again, a kind of like median income or a median um, rental price throughout the state as well. And so actually 54K would be exactly enough to get me out of rent burden. So anything less than that would actually still keep me in, in rent burden. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of yeah, how the demands. Yeah. yeah, which rent burden is, is, is far too normalized, I think, especially in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, and like collective bargaining as tenants as well as workers is fascinating mm-hmm. right like it's something we've seen yeah. but not on a large scale like um and like you aren't on, yeah. on rent strike yet but uh yeah it's... and oh sorry I mean, yeah, as, no, a, as, as, as a side note yeah um we did have a couple rent strikes in uh mm-hmm. within the uc system in the past few years at berkeley at ucla and here yeah. um and so i was actually part of organizing um in the aftermath of cola at the beginning of the pandemic um i helped organize the first rent strike um within uh, hdh uh, ucsd grad housing yeah. Um, and so we, ha- we have also seen that, but that's another way that the union has kind of limited the scope of this movement because there's been so much focus on us as only workers and the bread and butter issues. We kind of lose sight of the way that withholding rent, as you're saying, is another way of like really getting at the heart of the UC's profit engine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it is a shame that these like, um, yeah, if you want to set things into historical perspective, I, of course, like I love Paris 68 to... Yeah, it's like the monolith of student political organizing, I guess, and student political organizing changing the established structures of the left, uh, which which is it's some of what you had demanded was very similar to that in a sense, and that it was societal and political as much as it wasn't economic, right? And American unions tend to phrase themselves in terms of like respectable liberal politics, not that. So it's a shame yeah. to see that go, I guess. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, this actually came up in a in a meeting, um, which kind of astounded me, but again, didn't on one hand astounded me and the other hand was completely sort of like to be expected, which is someone uh, saying we need to make this movement um, as accessible as possible to workers without an activist bone in their body. Um, and so, again, there's always that appeal to the right, always the appeal to the most yeah. um, conservative reactionary force and always at the expense right, of the folks who are the most vulnerable always at the expense of expanding this movement into, as you're saying, something that is more uh, socio and so- socially and politically engaged. Yeah, yeah. I think most people become activists when they have to live in their car because they can't <laughs> afford to live in the UC yeah. housing when they work at the UC, but mm-hmm. uh, that is not everyone, of course. And yeah. All right, 
Mohammed, where can people find you? Do you have social media? Do you is that something you want to share? Or do you prefer <laughs> to share like your unions or um, something else? I guess uh, on <laughs> on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. I am uh, at Islamo Marxist. Um, there you go. <laughs> and so yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, folks can find me there. Um, otherwise, I mean, if there are folks within the UC um, that are organizing um, within any of the like vote no channels, I'm sure folks mm-hmm. could find their way to me. Um, but yeah, I think just in general, like following the the rank and file and cola associated accounts on on social media, trying to attend uh, as many meetings as possible is uh, is really how I think folks can get more um, in tune with with the the struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yeah. it. And it, yeah, best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER this is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play so i'm joined today by megan lynch who's the founder of and a volunteer for uc access now which has been one of the important bodies lobbying for increased access needs for people with disabilities at the uc as part of this strike hi megan how are you doing hi uh, i'm doing well how about uh, thanks for having me 
<laughs> no, great. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Megan. Can you explain and uh, maybe explain a little bit about uh, UC Access now first, and then we can get into sort of what the issues were and what the demands were. Well, let me start with clarifying what access needs are. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, I wouldn't want to. I want to. Wouldn't want to have more access needs because it would mean that I need more things that I need to negotiate getting them met. So, an access need is uh, I have something that I. I need somebody to to you know the, the the inaccessible environment that we have often it's it's sort of default inaccessibility and so having an access needs means that you know uh I need to work out how to be in that environment and sometimes you can even be in a, a really well accessible environment and uh it would be hard for people to meet your access need without again trying to come to some kind of agreement so there's a difference between accessibility and access needs and i just wanted to clarify that oh thank you yeah i think that's very important um so can you explain then what what sort of issues people were running into before the strike like what what sort of things were there that limited people's access to university spaces oh. or education yeah. or work well, still very much going on. And in fact, it's actually increased during the pandemic. Um, the only time where things got a little better for some of us was, uh, you know, in March 2020, when everybody, you know, and this is what often happens, is that something, when suddenly people who don't identify as disabled need something, and there's enough of that, then it's there's no problem. Nobody has to submit <laughs> medical documentation. Nobody has to get special permission. It's really not a big rigmarole, right? But uh, when you identify as disabled and you say, I have this as an access need, then suddenly, you know, you get the, you get the, the, the Spanish Inquisition in terms of whether you 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 deserve this thing that your tax dollars have been paying for at your institution anyway. So um, it really runs the gamut for, you know, I guess what I could best talk about is my own situation and uh, what led to the formation of UC Access Now. So um I arrived here before the start of uh, fall 2019 as a 50-year-old disabled grad student. So I'm already in a kind of unusual position by being 54 years old here and then disabled on top of it. And uh, I was set to TA my first uh, quarter here. And I could spot even before the quarter started that the kinds of cycle racks they have here at UC Davis, which is, you know, usually lauded for being, quote unquote, bike friendly. Yeah uh were not accessible to me and that they would eventually you know I could do it once or twice without hurting myself but over time I was going to be hurt and that would get in the way of me being able to do my duties as a TA not to mention anything I need to do for myself because uh I was riding like a lot of disabled cyclists I don't ride the standard upright bicycle I ride a recumbent bicycle with underseat steering and the the racks are not usually a big deal places. I've lived in a number of different cities in California, mm -hmm. uh, Berkeley, Los Angeles. See, a lot of places have what are, you know, U racks, yep. you know, it, which is similar kind of to a Sheffield rack for folks who know those, except, you know, not quite as big. So it's not like it's this special, you know, you don't go to a special adaptive store for this rack. It is <laughs> a more accessible rack and most cities are sensibly using them. But for here, because despite their bike-friendly reputation, they actually want to prioritize space for cars, they have made these racks that are so close together and not supportive, et cetera, that the only part I could 
ever lock my bike to would be the ends. And that's what everybody else wants to take first. Um, and it wouldn't even be easy to the ends because, again, these are really very specifically, they have wheel wells and the relationship between the lock uh, yeah. Yeah, thing and the wheel well is exactly the space apart you would do if you had sort of a standard adult size upright bike. And honestly, they're not even good for people who ride those. So, for instance, if you go on UC Davis subreddit, you will see sometimes threads where people are bullying people who want to get a cruiser bike because they're like, those things take up too much room. No, it's not that they didn't take up too much room. It's that the racks are very poorly designed. Yeah. yeah there are things <laughs> that take up so, a lot of room in cities, but they are SUVs. Yeah, they rather they would rather bully somebody about their choice of bike than to say, hey, these are really, what a waste of taxpayer money to get these, these bike racks that not only don't work for a lot of disabled people, but don't even work for people who are riding cargo bikes or using a trailer or, you know, other things you would want to do. So, so anyway, I went... Uh, first to the Disabled Students uh, Center here, which is, you know, the rationing and policing agency for disabled people. And, you know, it's amazing to me, like this, these are the people and they will literally call themselves experts on disability and accessibility. And they said to me, gosh, it never occurred to us that that would need to be accessible. <laughs> <laughs> this is on a campus where they're trying to encourage you to leave your car at home, at least some of us, right? Yeah. And uh and it's also how you get to school and to work, right? So why wouldn't I need that to be accessible? <laughs> and so they I asked for something as simple as can you sign a letter? They wouldn't do it. You know, can you they wouldn't they wouldn't back me up at all. So then I go directly to the transportation and parking services. They were like it's not covered under ADA, which is not true. And, you know, and then they were like the solution they wanted to pose with it. I, you know, eventually when I finally, after months, got a meeting, they were like, well, give us your schedule of classes and we'll install one of these racks at each building you're at. As if my schedule isn't going to change each quarter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to take <laughs> is them that, that a better use of? It. Yeah. Is that a better use of tax money to send a crew around to like to 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 jackhammer concrete at a different location for each quarter, according to each disabled cyclist class that changes just get the right rack yeah <laughs> so that that's when i went to the union and even in the union at that time uh it you know it was really clear it wasn't just with that issue i had other issues but this was definitely getting in the way of my work as a ta because it was hurting my hands very badly and in fact i'd fallen a couple of times and my bike had fallen on top of me and like nobody helps you you just sit there watching you like a turtle trying to you know get up again. Yeah. <laughs> so th there's things like that there's things like um even just the housing here in terms of for instance if i had had the luck of having a romantic partner if i'd had the wealth and the ability to choose to have children i would have been able to get grad housing but as a disabled mm -hmm. person who has an access need to be close to campus i was i had zero priority whatsoever oh, wow. And so I very nearly ended up starting that quarter having to live out of my car because, you know, and I would think it would be pretty clear that a 54 year old disabled grad student might actually have <laughs> uh, maybe have more op uh, have fewer options in housing than somebody who's in their 20s and isn't disabled. But uh, but, you know, and I'm not saying that parents don't need family housing or anything like that. But yeah. what I'm saying is very clearly, I think some disabled people do have strong access needs to yeah. have accessible housing near camp campus. 
And that's very much not something that they bothered themselves with here at UC Davis. So, you know, it, there's other things in terms of online accessibility and other things, but the, those are the things that that affected me that I think are worth mentioning simply because they, they're both unusual things people don't tend to think of. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is a very, uh, it's a very difficult system to navigate. Like, like you said, I think one of the things that's really stood out is this, this demand for like documentation uh, for any any sort of accommodation that you might need. Like they can make it very hard. I remember in, um, I was teaching at UCSD and I shattered my pelvis uh, and like that made moving at all extremely difficult for me. And uh, they wouldn't give me a parking pass. Um, and like, mm -hmm. Then, then proceeded to off me once I had diabetes, which is a whole like like interesting like it's sort of calculation of which one of those things will definitely stop you walking. So, yeah, and it it was extremely sort of humiliating. I can say from a personal perspective, and, and degrading, and time consuming, and unnecessary. And so, what were the demands then? At the start of this strike, right, there was an access needs element to the demands being made by the union. So. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can go through, uh, maybe first we can go through how you went from uh, like this bike rack, which didn't accommodate a pretty pretty basic need, right, to transport yourself to campus. How do we get from there to the union having access needs demands as part of the strike? So as far as UC Access Now's involvement with it, um, we went on uh Twitter and and uh Facebook and Instagram and and published the demand manifesto in July of 2020. So uh the months between, you know, the fall when I made, you know, went through these processes and when I finally decided okay, nobody's doing anything about this and I don't see any other organizations, so let's you know jump into this. Um by July, uh we UC Access Now was contacted by somebody who was uh an officer within UAW 5810, and that's okay. the postdoc and, and academic researcher union. And they uh, had seen our uh, work, you know, via social media and whatnot, and said, you know, we're about to go into contract bargaining, and we'd really like to talk about disability issues. So we had a meeting with them, and we actually had we did a presentation also to them uh, but for their social justice seminar series, but we also had a, a meeting with a number of people from 5810 in terms of let's, you know, let's think creatively here. Let's, let's be ambitious about what it is, you know, because the thing is, is that a lot of what people tend to do, particularly, particularly when they're not disabled, but even some disabled people can do this because internalized ableism is really hard to throw off. We're sort of, you know, and this is true of other oppressions too. You know, we're all sort of used to this system that has this policing, uh, austerity, et cetera. You know, we all get schooled into not hoping for much anymore because we're just so used, you know, in my lifetime, I've lived through decades of this kind of Reaganite baloney. So, <laughs> so it takes a while to think big about these things, but that's what we were trying to do. And so we sort of brainstormed with them, uh, several UC Access Now members, and several uh, 5810 members in terms of the sorts of things they could be uh, asking for. And so if if there's time and you don't mind, I can give you a, a view of that because yeah, yeah. the other stuff's online, but this isn't. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> so again, this is sort of just a spitballing document, but we were like, you know, all ads for postdoc positions on all platforms, they have to be accessible. Now, yeah. 
some some of this and some of what we're talking about is stuff that UC is actually legally obligated to do and just has not been doing. Um, that would be one of them. Um, training, you know, most emergency access plans are not made with the input of disabled people and they don't even mention us. So, you know, there are considerations for accessibility for different types of disabilities, different people. Uh, we have several buildings on UC Davis campus here that have little placards right in the lobby that say, <laughs> they say something like, if you depend on uh, vi visual alarm systems in an emergency, please let somebody else know you're in this building, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, even the way that's phrased, because, you know, quote unquote, abled people, are you dependent on a sound alarm system to get out in a fire? <laughs> but, they, yeah. but they don't phrase it, you know, as dependence yeah. when it's for them, right? They only phrase right. it as dependence when it's for somebody who's deaf or hard of hearing. Yeah. So we've got several buildings on campus where they know that it's not up. It's not up to even not even just ADA, but just like basic human decency. People will die in that building. Deaf and hard of hearing people will not know that there's a fire or other emergency alarm system going off because we couldn't be bothered to pony up for some lights. Um, so <laughs> wow, that yeah. that kind of thing in terms of an emergency action plan, these things have to be done. There has to be training not only for the supervisors, but really for UC itself, because the whole system is just, you know, uh, cram full of ableism, you know. Uh, yeah. Online working is key to accessibility, so it has to be a regular option, not just uh, something for the pandemic. It should have been the whole time. And it also shouldn't, you know, be a, a big uh, uh, burst up to it. There are some, and you know, there are like kind of, kind of things you would think of as smaller that we put in here simply because, again, we're trying to think creatively, which is, you know, reimbursements, for instance. I mean, that's a general problem with, with grad students and whatnot, is that the university, which has far more resources than we do, is sort of, you know, taking its time reimbursing us for things that we've yes. had to get, right? And so the debt is actually being heaped onto the people least able to support it. And when it comes to disabled people, that is going to be even more of a burden because most disabled people have a higher cost of living and often have a lower income to boot. Uh, so we put, you know, that in there. We put in uh, uh, reimbursements for costs incurred uh, working at home or, 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 you know, in other ways remotely for an employer. That's Section 2802 of the California Labor Code. Um, uh, you know, sick policy in terms of like uh, co commuter checks, which, you know, or some other kind of thing for public transit. Uh, make the childcare spaces and lactation rooms are accessible because, you know, the union will like lobby for that. Right. But yeah. you need to be you need to be expressed about the idea that these things need to be accessible. Like people don't think of everything needing to be accessible but really right. it does <laughs> yeah and that sends a very sort of condescending message about like what you know different people with different disabilities might or might not be doing uh, which obviously isn't great that the uc is doing that um so like i really i thought these demands were fascinating uh because it's not what we often talk about when we talk about strikes like we talk about strikes often purely in terms of economics right like uh in, in in the US that can include things like non-wage benefits, right, like healthcare. Uh, but it, it in in sort of most instances we talk about strikes in bread and butter terms, like they have gone out and they want this much money to come back. And I think that strikes have the potential to build much greater solidarity by doing things like this, by incorporating these uh, 
I guess social justice demands is one way of phrasing it. Or, um, these basic human decency demands would be another way of saying it. Yeah. And it really, uh, yeah, really impressed me that, that this this was part of the the package of, of demands from the union. How have things gone? Are you comfortable talking about how things have gone since the strike began? Well, I, I certainly don't know everything backwards and forwards because honestly, it would be hard for any one person to know it all. It's all extremely complex stuff yes. <laughs> in terms of, not in terms of like, you know, things on the ground, but in terms of the um, the language in contracts and the process in bargaining, uh, there's a difference between like things that are tradition, traditional to do, as opposed to things that are actually the law. And then, of course, the actual enforcement of the law. So anyway, this has been going on for a whole year. And as you can imagine, like penetrating it as your average person, it yeah. can be very difficult. Yes. <laughs> so very. I will certainly give you, you know, my view of it as so far as I've seen it. But um, we do have uh, so so we helped uh, 5810 with like sort of spitballing and they took it from there. And what they started out with was not as, you know, ambitious as the spitball document. Um, I think it ten I think that got replicated a lot throughout the unions, which is, you know, my advice as somebody from the outside just thinking about negotiations in general. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know they're gonna cut you down, right? Yeah. So why would you be the one to cut you down? You know they're gonna do it, right? You yeah. think big. Let them cut you down. <laughs> yeah. And and unfortunately, there were the majority voices in the bargaining teams tended often to be at least where the access needs articles were concerned. Um, tended to be kind of let us cut ourselves down. Uh, so the starting doc for 5810, although, you know, it still had things in it that were very like if we have the original version of 5810 instead of what actually uh, the folks, you know, voted on, mm -hmm. voted yes on recently, uh, it would still be a revolutionary document in, in U.S. labor history, I think. You know, I don't, I've never heard in the news of anything any uh, uh, more ambitious than that, but but definitely it was down from what we were starting with, which, you know. Um, so, but I think what happened was that, you know, 5810 came out and they were trying to coordinate and learn from each other the different units, right? So then folks on SRU and uh, UAW 2865 also uh worked on the access needs articles and and the access needs articles even in themselves was a change because the previous versions of these things were phrased as reasonable accommodations which is language that stems from the Americans with Disabilities Act and even that phrase is something that is really outdated because it is the idea the idea is who is deciding what's reasonable right the person who has no lived experience of disability or this gigantic public institution that is funded, including by disabled people's tuitions and, and fees and whatnot and taxes. But, you know, where does my money go? It goes into building an inaccessible university, right? So why am I supposed to let you judge what is reasonable? I think it's incredibly unreasonable that you use my money to build a, a university that not is, is not only hard for me to be at, but is actively hostile to my health. Um, and so, you know, and just the, uh, the word accommodations centers and codifies that inaccessibility as being the norm, 
Right. And anything you do different from it is like you being accommodating. Well, get the, get the hell out of here with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes much more sense to phrase it in, the, in those ways. And, and like, yeah, it, it seems like it, it was, as you said, a very ambitious goal and one that like not all of those those things got transferred, which is, I, I mean, the, that that can happen in strikes, but mm-hmm. uh, it's also like it's it's a non-economic thing that the university could have given to you all that it wouldn't have had to have you know I mean, and the university has a lot of money and it it would be very possible for it to pay graduate students the wage they right. asked for at the start and post grad postdocs um could be paid the the wages they asked for too and it wouldn't really hurt the university they could they could. You know, there are a million ways they could fund that. Um, but well, I think that gets to the crux of why they don't do this. Because the thing is, is that if if you really think about it this way, and it takes a little doing, because again, we're sort of schooled not to. Yeah. But um, it is a form of misappropriation of public funds. If all of the public is funding this institution, and we do that through our state and our federal taxes, we do, and and then of course, if we get in, we're doing it through tuition and fees. And then, of course, the grants the university gets are also federal grants and this sort of thing. Um, then what you're doing is you're taking money that take, comes from all of the public and pre-pandemic figures in terms of like this is before the mass disabling event that the pandemic is. Yeah. The 25 percent of America, adult Americans had at least one disability. So you're taking money from those folks. And you're saying, but we're not going to build this public university in a way that is not only like tolerable by you, but like a place where you could thrive. It doesn't even reach tolerable. It actually drives a lot of us out of here. It worsens health. And I have no doubt that it has killed people. So we. So what happens, the reason I mentioned this is because that misappropriation of funds, you know, that's the incentive, right? What can if 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 you're going off this austerity mindset that you shut off like people from things they need, right? What happens to that money? Well, we have an admin that is completely bloated in size. Mm-hmm. We have every single chancellor getting a raise during a pandemic that they completely blew in terms of public health protections, in terms of accessibility, even to people when they needed it during the pandemic. Like if they hadn't been fighting accessibility that long we would have handled the pandemic better because we would have had better online pedagogy already available and developed. Yeah. So it is, it, 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 that's a kind of jump that people don't make, but that's exactly what's going on. That's why they have the interest in putting this rationing and policing bureaucracy together to, like not many disabled people even get here because this is of course not the only ableist institution. It's hard to even get here. But then when you get here, they want to reduce who can get their access needs met. And then the access needs being met is such a gauntlet. And only the most privileged of disabled people can get that. And so, you know, as far as disabled people at at uh, UC who are in the system, so to speak, you know, are registered or whatever, mm-hmm. that's going to not at all be representative of the public that's going to be mostly white folks with some access to to privilege you know yeah of course and i think you've given a good sort of elucidation of why this is a struggle that obviously everyone should be part of and everyone should be getting behind because it it, it, like it's it's all of us are invested in this and all of us are paying for this university which isn't accessible right now so 
I wonder, like, what's your advice? Because there are unprecedented numbers of people forming unions, right? Like Starbucks being one example that we see a lot of coverage of. But all across the country, there are more people forming unions. There are more people going on strike. How should they organize around similar things? Like, How should they organize around getting these access needs met? Well, I think I think you have to start by sweeping your own side of the street, which is that you have to make sure that your union communications, your uh, meetings, uh, everything about your union is accessible. And if you don't know how to do that, then that's where you start. You start with learning what accessibility is and how to make things accessible. Because what we found when we started, uh, when we came out, kind of uh, UC Access Now did was. You know, as you can imagine, in a society where there are quite strong financial uh, punishments for even you know, even identifying as disabled. And what I mean by that is like, say, again, here on UC Davis, uh, you were talking about how hard it was for you to get parking, right? You know, yeah, when yeah. you had a shattered pelvis, how it was to go through. Every single day here on campus, there are abled employees driving trucks and vans that they drive straight up to the door of the building on the sidewalk, blocking egress for actual disabled people and actually blocking fire egress out of the building um, yeah. because that's what's, you know, because they can't be bothered to walk 20 feet from the legal space that they have already have the privilege of being on campus compared to everybody else. Right. But they but they had to have it even more convenient to that. And they drive straight up to the door. Right. Nobody right. gives them, nobody says boo about that. Nobody says you need to get a medical dec documentation. Nobody says you're getting fined and you and you're, you don't get to drive this campus truck again or whatever. None of that goes on. What would happen, I guarantee you, if that employee identified as disabled all of a sudden, then they would come down on that person for what they're doing. It, it's, it's a real, so because of these things, there's a lot of incentive for people to hide their disability because you get a, there's a lot of stigma, but there's also a real, a quite real financial hit to it. And, uh, and so what happens once you sort of create a safer space to talk about it, uh, uh, people will start DMing you, you know, and they will let you know that they're starting to have problems on the job or whatever. They may not be ready to come out for those. Like some people, it's obvious they're disabled, right? It's not even like they have a choice about quote unquote coming out, right? Yes. <laughs> but for other people, it's not obvious unless they tell you and they have a lot of incentive to not, you know, identify that way. Um, but when you make your union a safe and inclusive and accessible place, you will find you have already been making assumptions about what your union membership is. So you already have members who are disabled. It's just that they're not telling you about it. But furthermore, if your union starts really um, becoming an accessible, inclusive place, you know, not performative, really being there, like your, your communications are accessible, you, you're clearly um, educating yourselves around ableism, educating yourselves around accessibility, so like when you have your meeting, it's not in a, a room that isn't wheelchair accessible, that doesn't have a working elevator on that floor, or, you know, all these things that people kind of don't think about until uh, they're the one with the broken leg. Um, then that really goes some way to helping you organize things. And you will find you already have members that you can tap, you know, because they'll start to feel more 
more involved once they see you're willing to go to bat for them. And what I would say that folks should learn from the UCUAW experience right now. And this doesn't just refer to disabled workers. It's really other marginalized workers, which is, you know, if you're in a contract bargaining situation and it's clear that like you're the bargaining chip, like why would that why would that group want to hang with you? You're you're saying yeah. support us and what we want, but we're going to desert you when it's your time. You weren't going to depend on the fact that everybody likes more pay, and we're just going to say okay, you're going to stick with us and and work you know with the union no matter what. And it's like no, a lot of people are going to go well. I'm sticking, you know, you clearly don't support me. So I don't see why I need to go with you and put myself at risk. Cause if you win, I'm going to get the raise anyway. And, uh, and if you don't win, well, then that's good for you because now you know how it feels like to be tossed aside, you know? So, (laughs) so you have to really be there for your marginalized workers. You know, it has to be this non-performative thing, but the, but the thing is, is that if you are non-performative about it, you are you're making the workplace not only better from disabled workers you already have, but you are making it better for yourself because every single one of us pretty much is going to be disabled either temporarily or permanently at some point in our lives. It is the easiest club to join. And, you know, I I think as we found during the pandemic, you know, people, a lot of people, they make this, they say, oh, online sucks. Online school sucks. Why does it suck? Because you never invested in it. It's like several, it's several yeah. decades old. Yes. You never invested in it. You never put any effort or money into it. Like that's, you know, so if you want your workplace to be a good quality workplace for you, that is not only just like a place you barely, you know, feel okay going to, but like some place you really, we spend most of our lives in the workplace, you know? Yeah. Especially as grad so students. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So it should be someplace that really makes us feel better and fulfilled because nobody works well when they're stressed out. Nobody, you know, you're not productive when you're constantly stressed. So this really should be a win-win all around. And and you're think about it this way also, which is that, you know, and this is particularly applicable when it comes to UC. And you know, the pandemic is another great example of this. This has gotten a little bit of focus in the press, but I don't think as much as it deserves, which is that you have this, not only an event where millions of people died globally, right? But you have you have quite a few people. They have long COVID. They have other things. Mm-hmm. People who arrive at UC and particularly who go, you know, get to the point they've got their degree or whatever, you know, these are people who are trained, highly educated trained in a certain thing they're making contributions to their field do you really want it to be that we lose all the knowledge that these people have all the the institutional uh memory and experience that these people have just at a time when we're facing incredible crises as a planet you know in terms of climate change and in terms of you know the attacks on democracies and things or just even what the people mean to their community, right? You know, you're talking about the fabric of your community. If you make it, if you have an inaccessible workplace, if you have an inaccessible school, if you have places, you know, uh, in the public square that are not accessible, 
you're making it so that when somebody becomes disabled and that person could be you, you may never be able to practice the thing that you love and you've trained for your whole life. And the community loses what you could bring to this at a time when we need more than ever, every all hands on deck to be like solving climate change and other problems that face us. Yeah. Yeah. That is very well said, actually, that, that yeah, it's uh, certainly made a very good case. So I wonder, I mean, obviously the, the negotiations are still ongoing, at least for uh, the SRU uh, uh, and for, uh, I think for, for TAs as well. Um, so what can uh, people do to support the demands that have been made? Like how can people maybe who are not part of the union, who are not part of the UC even, or perhaps undergrads who are part of the UC but not part of the union, how, how can they show solidarity and support here? Well, I think part of it is, you know, not giving up on the idea that we can press for the original Axios Needs article. Uh, I, I know there's all sorts of like, you know, technical rules about regressive bargaining, but honestly, I think UC has broken a lot of the rules of bargaining. So I don't see why that doesn't, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like what's good for the goose is good for the gander as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> there's also even outside of bargaining. You know, as I said, a lot of these things are things that UC routinely breaks ADA. UC routinely breaks. There's other parts of disability law in terms of um, Section 504, the Rehabilitation Act, and and there's some California law as well as my understanding of it. So you know, you see, just as they have this rationing and policing agency bureaucracy, and it's two separate silos: one for students and one for workers, and they do that. Like even the fact that they do that communicates that it's not about offering accessibility as a default, because why would you have two silos for that? Well, you have two silos for that because the law that affects students and affects workers are slightly different. So what you're coming from is this aspect of we are dedicated to only doing the barest minimum of the minimum required by law. So we don't even want to meet that minimum required by law. It's like it's like, you know, you want to offer minimum wage, but if you can get away with it, you're not even going to meet minimum wage. And you have a lot of lawyers and a bureaucracy to, to make it possible for you to do that. That's what UC does. Um, so that kind of stuff is stuff that outside of even a labor contract, you should be able to write the governor, write the lieutenant governor who's actually got a seat on the Board of Regents, write your California legislators. You know, when there was a there was a NIMBY who sued Cal. This was in the news this year. There was a NIMBY who sued Cal to make it so that Cal couldn't make housing, and and Cal or or to Cal to make it so that Cal was going to have to limit how many it was uh, admitting because, in the opinion of that group, like they weren't building enough housing to take care of their students, and they were crowding up Berkeley and blah blah blah. The outrage about that from parents who wanted to send their kids to Cal was so great that, like, within a couple weeks. The governor and the legislators had passed something to address that. If you put that kind of pressure on the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the you know the, your state legislators, they will make sure that the UC office of the president feels that pressure, because these are things, these are laws. You know, at the we had more ambitious things beyond law, but some of the things that we were that are trying to do in this contract are really just things that. They're already required by law to do, but aren't doing. We were trying to give it, make it so there was more teeth there because clearly the federal and state teeth weren't good enough. 
So we um, we have a resist spot petition out there, but you you know to make it a little easier to contact mm-hmm. your if if you're a California resident, okay. the resist spot petition would work that way. But if but if not, you know, like I said, if you if you if you're a, a parent of a student here, you can write. If you're an alumni, you know, you can write. Just really hammer them about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think. I think writing does make a difference. I think especially for an institution that I don't quite know how financially dependent they are on donations, but they certainly do like to solicit them, especially uh, if if you're uh, an alumnus, because they solicit them for me a lot. Uh, I do not have that much money. So yeah, thank you very much for sharing all of that with us. And I thought that was really, really instructive. How can people find you and how can people find UC Access now if they want to find you online? Uh, We are on Twitter as AccessUC, at AccessUC. Um, We are on Facebook and Instagram as well. Actually, it's also LinkedIn for the more businessy people. Uh, That's UC Access now. Um, and you can also reach us at ucaccessnow at gmail.com if you wanted to email us. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, just to finish up briefly, we are going to try and make a transcript of this available at the same time as the episode goes out. And so if folks uh, would like to read it that way, uh, if that's easier for them, then we're going to make sure that we have that for this one. So yeah, if you're, if you're listening or if you think someone else that you know would like this uh, and, and listening doesn't work for them, then we're going to do that. Thank you so much megan for uh, giving us some of your afternoon and yeah i hope you see some support and i wish you the best of luck with everything well thank you so much it could happen here is a production of cool zone media for more podcasts from cool zone media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts you can find sources for it could happen here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources Thanks for listening. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 